In today's episode of Collapse Talk, we'll be discussing the aftermath and consequences of the September 11th attacks as we reflect on the 18th anniversary, as well as other world developments including the strikes on the oil facilities within Saudi Arabia and rising tensions between Iran. So without further ado, enjoy the ride. back again uh, a little late on this episode uh, it's kind of caught up with the school and life but I wanted to get this episode out as quick as I could a lot has happened so we'll just dive right into it so as some of y'all or most of y'all may have remembered last week was the anniversary of 9-11 the 18th anniversary and it kind of just came and passed you know most of the time when people 9-11 comes around it's just you know a thing that happens so it's more just like a for I guess for our generation is a bit different because it's had such a huge implication on our lives we don't really buy into all that nationalist ideals or at least you know the ones that I'm around they haven't but my point really is you know being that it's the 18th anniversary you know I know people who were born on 9-11 which is surreal for me, and they're legally an adult. So this is really a new stage for well, those who were born in that time, and for this event, really, because we've had enough time to look back and see what exactly has transpired since the events of that, those attacks, the World Trade Center attacks and the Pentagon and the United 93 flight that fell over in Pennsylvania. So it's interesting. So personally, with 9-11, I was a bit too young with that event. I was about five years old. And I don't remember the attack or more so the hysteria behind it. But I remember the day afterwards because that that was the day where the parents were able to get their minds at ease and figure out a way to, to break the news that the country was attacking, that we're going to war. So yeah, I remember at the time I was living in St. Croix, so we were a little, you know, disconnected from the whole situation, but still it was quite a shock, you know, the you know the nation's under attack, like you don't know what's next. And I remember the day afterwards, getting ready for class, my father he had left the living room door open, and I could look into the TV and see the planes hitting the towers. And I just didn't know how to process it. Like it was, I thought it was like a, 
a movie or I, I didn't I didn't know so it, it kind of just seemed weird and funny to me because like who, who flies who flies a plane into a building you know so they my parents I don't really remember them trying to explain it to me I guess they kind of wanted to, to just brush it under the rug they they didn't want me to grow up resenting anybody for for this attack or I get yeah I was just too young I guess but when I went to school uh, they really sat us down and discussed it and I, I still I remember that I, I that I remember because it was really a surreal moment for children you know I was in pre-k at the time really and having adults explain to you that the world is a dangerous place for the first time that's a life-changing moment especially considering this you know, I, you know it's pretty much the same reaction you know young kids would have had after the attack on Pearl Harbor you, know, you just found out that your country was attacked and now we're in a world war. Wow, your brothers and your fathers are off to fight. So following that, we have, of course, the subsequent war on terror, the wars in Afghanistan, the wars in Iraq. And in the community that I grew up in, it wasn't exactly as it wasn't accepted. Uh, the, the war it was pretty clear that the wars were illegal to, for us. And that our sons and you know, brothers, neighbors were dying to fight in a reckless war. So it was pretty common knowledge. So I, I was exposed to that. And I, and I also lived in a community that was extremely diverse, had a significant Muslim population. And for the most part, I never felt or I never witnessed any discrimination or any like hatred. Of course, there was occasionally you know, an argument here or there, but it wasn't a systemic thing. It wasn't as though that the community was being targeted by the other other people at least not in my experience not from what i've seen so i guess i'm lucky in that sense you know having lived in that in st croix the virgin islands lived in there uh, a diverse area more liberal leaning well not even liberal it's just you know sensible because it's pretty obvious what these wars were really about it was never about freedom or protecting uh, this country, yeah. I don't believe in those. I don't subscribe to those uh, conspiracy theories that saying that Bush or Cheney orchestrated the attacks or you know allowed the attacks to happen. But it certainly was convenient for them. I think they they certainly saw the opportunity that they could take. I mean, at least for Cheney, I don't, I wouldn't put it out of uh, you know the way for him to orchestrate an attack on the United States. But of course, there have been reports prior to the attack on 9-11 saying how in an event of a Pearl Harbor style attack that they could use that as a catalyst to wage whatever war and implement whatever legislation they needed in the name of national security, which of course is fascism. So if you really want to say it, uh, that 9-11 is the catalyst for fascism in the United States, that's quite sad. It, I mean, it kind of makes sense, really, but it's just it's terrible because, yeah, you're witnessing the beginnings of the police state. Well, really, the the, the beginnings of the police state had been set in motion years before, uh, you know, mainly with the, the drug war. Um, but now we have in the name of national security and you know, protecting our freedoms, now you have people like 
the FBI and of course the NSA spying and all sorts of surveillance and liberties being eroded away because they're not really pretending anymore because you know of course they're gonna of course somebody is going to sign away their rights if, if it makes them feel safe that's the only way they can really rationalize it um however one particular agency that has uh you know caught our attention is well before i jump into that i still want to like talk more about the war on terror because that's still um it's still today it's still happening in a couple of weeks or so the war in afghanistan will be 18 years old also so the oldest unofficial war in american history will be 18 years old and soon enough iraq will be 18 also in afghanistan honestly i didn't even know we had invaded afghanistan until long after like i knew about the iraq invasion as it was happening but afghanistan no clue like that like when i learned that i realized okay we're in two wars that have no end in sight not to mention the other military actions that are occurring around the world so really if you want to think about it there's three wars the war in afghanistan the war in iraq and then there's just the war all over the world so africa syria yeah it's everywhere and that's what congress did in the wake of 9 11 they signed over to bush war powers military powers to strike at whatever threat he deemed necessary and that ha that's that policy has been in place since then it didn't redact it under obama and certainly not doing it under trump so yeah it, it's it's a recipe for disaster and this is exactly what the founding fathers were warning us about about perpetual conflict that the commander-in-chief needs checks and balances so you know it's one thing to ask for Congress for approval before any military action but it's another thing for Congress to just allow it just to wholesale yeah here you go stamp of approval just do it and there's plenty of uh, politicians today who are still campaigning off you know supposedly on the left or wanting to end the wars that did vote for the Iraq war did allow Trump or not Trump Bush to use whatever military actions he needed to do only Bernie Sanders voted against it. Of course, you know, Bernie is always on the the right side of history. Yeah. So those wars, they've been going on for some time. It's surreal. Like, now there are soldiers who are fighting a war that they can't even remember why it started. It's going to get to that point. I mean, they'll they'll know how it started, but that's mainly because they were told about it. They, they didn't live through it. So, I'm in a weird generation that we've lived, that we're literally in a world, uh, sitting between two worlds. So the world before 9-11, the 90s, early, late 90s, and then early 2000s when the world changed. So those consequences from those attacks they still reverberate today they still they're still guiding our policies today i mean that the wound is very fresh still it's still very fresh 
Now, with good reason, it's, you know, it's an attack, you know, it's, yeah. I don't, I'm not going to blame somebody for, you know, defending the nation's honor. But it's another thing when you're going to attack another person or place because you think that they're going to attack or you think they're a part of that because the whole, the whole situation was really just the, those 19 hijackers or supposedly allegedly the 19 hijackers the majority of them were saudi and the majority of them were either saudi or egyptian yeah it there wasn't any connection with iraq for you know whatever reason you know so the taliban in afghanistan aided them so we invaded there so iraq literally was just an illegal war it was just it wasn't supposed to happen but we did it anyway and we made ourselves look a fool and we've completely destroyed them and they hate us and so now what has happened is iraq is in the hands of iran so that whole quagmire is coming to bite us pretty soon actually i'll dive that into that later but yes it's interesting to see how the times have changed in the wake of this event and you can definitely tell that it's still very fresh although people aren't really willing to talk about it as much because they did at least from what i've observed some i think when 9 11 is mentioned there's just a general hush just you know but yes so continuing on, I was going to talk about the police state. With that, um, different agencies such as you know the NSA, FBI, and we now have ICE. Uh, I wanted to talk specifically about ICE because in the last week or so, there's been some interesting developments with them. Uh, recently, there was a report of ICE developing a urban training warfare facility i can't really say for sure the whole idea being that they were preparing to uh, or just hyper realistic scenarios in the urban situation so what i can gather from this is the agency is militarizing itself and is attempting to strengthen their resolve so when they go on these raids they can just go in and take whoever they need and if anybody stands up they just shoot them on sight i mean there was already another report of a ice agent opening fire in a parking lot it's crazy it really is so reading from the newsweek.com the u.s immigration and customs enforcement agency failed to redact a document for at least a second time in less than a month after trying to redact the location of a future urban warfare facility that is expected to include hyper-realistic simulations of homes, hotels, and commercial buildings in Chicago and Arizona. So yeah, they are, you know, it's one thing as a policing agency to you know train in close combat situations, but when I hear urban warfare training, that's that has a different connotation. That's more offensive, that's more aggressive, if you'll say it. Just, you know, ICE in general is just scummy. They're, they're, they're literally the worst of the worst. Like, I don't know where they find these people. Because the people who are joining ICE, they're, they, they really 
believe in the whole rounding up brown people. It's not about illegal immigration, okay? It's it's never been about illegal immigration. These guys are the, the Gestapo, the, the SS, whatever you want to call them, because they're they're up to no good. They and they will they are the yeah. I've read um an official statement that they said you know that they don't need an official warrant. You know the whole the whole their whole argument being that uh, a judge doesn't need to file a judicial warrant for a civil immigration case and any interference with an ICE agent is a federal offense which is that presents so many problems because what what determines illegal immigration illegal immigrant you know who, like what does it look like and naturally the the only time they ever talk about illegal immigrants is with hispanics and brown people like that's the only time it's ever of any concern. I mean, I haven't read any reports of ICE agents detaining, and I mean detaining like indiscriminately, you know, just detaining off of the street. You know, it's one thing if they know a particular person has overstayed their visa, but when they're out in the street, they're looking for Hispanics. That's what they are doing. And that's, it's, it's terrifying for me because, uh, you know, I live in Texas and so I, I have the feeling that one of these days I'm going to be stopped by an ICE agent and they're going to demand my papers. And who's to say that he doesn't that he's going to accept them? He can easily say that they're fake and that's that's all he needs. I mean, it happened in Dallas. This kid, uh, his name escapes me, a 16-year-old kid, he was arrested for 26 days. And he was denied food. He was denied hygienic products he was just locked away like an animal and he's you know miraculously got out but you know while he was in there they were threatening him and telling him you have no rights and it's crazy and there's a full con there, there are concentration camps in this country being run by these goons by these thugs and it's pretty obvious which direction it's going to go like this is already, we're already taking the steps towards genocide, but, you know, the people are dying because of negligence, not because it's on purpose, you know, not because it's policy yet, but it could get there, and once it does, you know, well, what are we going to do about it? I mean, those children are being, you know, locked away, and they're being denied toothbrush and toothpaste, and, you know, they, they can't even, like, hold each other. You know, they're being, you know, nobody's there to give them any, you know, any security. It's terrible. So fuck ICE. Thugs. It's also reading somewhere that Border Patrol agents and ICE agents have been feeling the pressure. They've been saying how, you know, everybody hates them and they're, you know, ever that before it was an obscure job and now where you see ICE or Border Patrol and Customs immediately just death stares. Which honestly, like, I'm kind of like on the fence about that. Because, you know, at first when I read that, I, I was thought, well, too but fucking bad, you know, you chose this job. But at the same time, it's more like, okay, I'm not against the idea of border patrolling the borders. I'm not against this idea. I'm not against the idea of enforcing immigration and customs. I'm not against it. 
The problem, however, is when it is systemically used to oppress minorities and groups that are deemed undesirable. That's the problem. So it doesn't matter what your name is and what your job is, but what what is what are you doing with that job? Are you hurting people? And they are they are hurting people. They're separating families. They are traumatizing children. You know, those children that are being locked away, they're going to grow up to hate this country. And they have every reason to. So I'm not going to be surprised in the years to come we see anti-American terrorism along the border. I mean, not that I want that, not that I support that, but I understand it because it makes perfect sense. Somebody, How, how are people going to sit back and watch these children being locked away? No, that's not going to happen. So we'll just move on from there because... My whole point really is that 9-11 has set in motion or set in motion a series of events that, as I said before, is leading to fascism. That's what it, you know, as I stated before, 9-11 traumatized the right. And so any threat that they see has to be eliminated. And... You know, of course, they see foreign threats. Now they're seeing domestic threats. And they are, you know, starting to, you know, group up and huddle together. Just like it's it's surreal. It's different. Um, yeah. It just it was a collective shock. And for that, they figured, well, I need to be safe, and if I have to give this up, make this sacrifice to be safe, then I'll do it. Without really thinking, okay, when the threat is eliminated, they're not going to give it back. Because they're just going to find another way to rationalize it. Because it was never about freedom. It's never been about liberties. and Yeah. I mean, the whole war on terror has been to the benefit of the military-industrial complex. With 9-11, they found their reason for perpetual war. So the wars in Iraq, well, Iraq, we've withdrawn, quotations, we've withdrawn from there. Afghanistan is still a pretty heavy combat zone. There was reports that Trump wanted to withdraw up to, well, we have about 14,000 in there right now, so he wanted to withdraw 5,000, leaving 9,000 behind. And this is, he's, he wants to withdraw troops in Afghanistan where the Taliban has more control than they did before 9-11. So uh, pre-9-11, Afghanistan was divided between all these different tribes and coalitions from what I know about the history there. So the Mujahideen or the Taliban, they had significant control over the country. They were a significant threat. And there was also this Northern Alliance. And once we had invaded into Afghanistan, we aided that Northern Alliance uh, in toppling the, ta the Taliban. Well, now in that time, since our occupation, invasion and occupation, the Taliban have seen an increase in recruitment. They control more land and territory. Yeah, so it doesn't really seem like we've been winning. So it really feels like it's a Vietnam situation. Now, my concern is, as we withdraw troops from the region, how will the Taliban respond to that? 
And my feeling is that eventually they'll come to a point where they can retaliate in a offensive-like style, just completely surprise us and overwhelm our forces there. Because again, 9,000 troops, that's really like not much. That's really only enough to garrison a couple cities, but yeah, easily with enough willpower, the Taliban could, could strike. Speaking of the Taliban, there was um, recently, it was kind of a gaffe really, but with uh, Trump, he had announced that he wanted to do a secret summit with Taliban leaders at Camp David, which was just a surreal thing to read. Like, I didn't think he was serious about that. That was a joke, but no, that that was on the table. Uh, and supposedly there was a, a car bombing, suicide bombing that killed several soldiers and civilians. And so Trump just got canceled that. So that secret meeting at Camp David never occurred. But I try, I really want to think for a moment, like, because it was just kind of mentioned. And then people who moved on to the next story, you know, I, I really feel that if Obama had announced that he was inviting Taliban leaders into the country to talk a peace deal, even today, still, it would be on the headlines. Oh, traitor Obama inviting the enemy over into Camp David. The Yeah. It's it's so it, yeah I mean it's not surprising because they rationalize anything Trump does, Daddy Trump, but yeah this you know he he wanted to do a whole like secret diplomatic meeting you know trying to pull some strings you know I'm the president you know I'll have the enemy over. That of course didn't work out well because he's not a diplomat can't i mean that's the thing too he announced it as a secret meeting on twitter but now it's no longer a secret meeting yeah genius uh, strategician but yes with uh the taliban they're they've been making some moves i mean you know there's a bombing and then there's also a rocket strike in the u.s embassy i believe so they've they're they're making their presence known, and I don't exactly know which direction they will take, but as more and more troops begin to withdraw from the region, they're certainly going to attempt to, you know, put their flag down, try to expand from there, because the central, you know, Afghanistan government isn't exactly that centralized. You know, Afghanistan is still a very tribal area, region, so... Yeah, you can't really have a democratic nation state where people don't have any loyalties. They only have, their only loyalties are to their village leaders and whichever warlord is going to help them out the most. So unless the government can find a way to benefit the people, they're not going to give a shit. So that's the situation in Afghanistan. Similar to in Iraq, you know, Iraq is very sectarian and the central government doesn't have much sway. It's mainly just ethnic divide, but... In Iraq, well, that's just a mess in general. And that's our mess. That's what we started. Yeah. So continuing on, I wanted to talk some more about 9-11, but a different dynamic. So everybody likes to dive into 9-11 conspiracy theories. They, you know, it's a, it's a topic of conversation. It's the most significant event of our lifetimes and possibly world history, American history. 
and there's a lot of mystery behind it. You know, naturally, you know, it's almost as it's our version of the Kennedy assassination because there's so many, so many questions, and whichever answer you're going to get clearly isn't going to be the truth. It, nobody, nobody's really going to know the truth of what happened that day or the, the years leading up to it. So I won't really talk about more. I won't really talk about the, the buildings itself, the World Trade Center. Some do believe that there were controlled explosions. I have a hard time buying into that, but it is what it is. But yes, with the Saudi connection, there's, I think, I think this has far greater implications because the, the, the suicide bombers or the, the hijackers, I should say, uh, the majority of them, the, the majority of them were uh, Saudi or Saudi born, Saudi raised. There are some Lebanese and Egyptians mixed in too, but it was majority Saudi. Osama bin Laden, he's a Saudi Arabian. And there have also been reports that members of the Saudi government may have also aided uh, these hijackers, logistically, financially. Uh, it's mainly uh, highlighted in the 28 missing pages of the 9-11 Commission report. The, from the Senate Intelligence Committee, and I mean, it's been declassified, but only just a smidge, so we only have a basic idea, uh, but we won't really get the full picture until many, many years from now, if we get them. Yet, the in Saudi Arabia, those hijackers, they it, it's, it's alleged that they had received aid from members of the government, members of the royal family, and were given training, were given the resources that they needed to get into the country. At one point, they had they had tried to test out the security protocols as part of the report here, reading from Wikipedia. So yes, plaintiffs in a 9-11 civil suit against Saudi Arabia have alleged that a number, November 1999 attempt by two men with long-standing ties to the Saudi government, Mohammed al-Qudhayn and Hamdan al-Shalawi, to get inside an American West Airlines plane's cockpit was a dry run for the 9-11 attacks. The FBI reportedly confirmed that the embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. paid for a Kudhain and Shalawi's tickets to board that flight. The 28 pages quoted a document from the FBI's Phoenix field office stating, Phoenix FBI now believes both men were specifically attempting to test the security procedures of America West Airlines in preparation for and in further furtherance of UBL, Osama bin Laden, and Al-Qaeda operations. So, yeah, that they had... They were make somebody had been making moves. Somebody was trying to test out the procedure procedures and yeah, because something an attack like 9/11 just doesn't happen like that. Like it requires a lot of planning. It requires training. You know, you got to learn how to fly. So you know, we now know that the, a lot of the members they did train to fly. That they got their pilot license. Like there's some pictures. They're you know smiling, thumbs up. It's crazy. It's also surreal too that the World Trade Center had been targeted before by 
by a tax. 1993, they had suffered bombing in the basements, killed a number of people. It wasn't I mean it was still significant, you know, but it wasn't as devastating. But yes, the World Trade Center had been a target before by Islamic terrorist attacks. So again, this wasn't something new. And even uh, Bill Clinton had reports saying that Osama bin Laden was planning to strike within the country. He was striving to strike within the country. So they had known. That they, or at the very least, there was an idea that there was a brewing attack. Or, yeah, I can't imagine being the intelligence officials, you know, trying to track down Osama bin Laden, you know, hearing chatter. That they are planning something big, but that you don't know where, and then September 11th happens. So, yeah, the Saudi connection, logistically, financially, ideologically, if you want to say too, because uh, Saudi Arabia is just the heart of Wahhabi, Wahhabist Islam, Islam, which is you know the strictest uh, interpretations of Sharia. You know, Saudi Arabia is basically, you know, America-funded ISIS. Well, ISIS had already been funded by America. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, Saudi Arabia is literally the same ideology as ISIS. It's just the same thing. It, you know, un yeah, I'm so flustered about it, too, because we're so dependent on them. So... Over the weekend on Saturday, uh, you may have heard whispers of this, but and the oil fields near Riyadh and I believe Abu Kayak, I don't know how to pronounce that, but these oil facilities and these processing facilities, they were the largest in the world. They're the largest in Saudi Arabia. They account for half of Saudi Arabia's oil production. And over the weekend, they were struck by a series of drone attacks or waves of drones i mean this 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 attack really is a turning point in this cold war between iran and saudi arabia you know it's a drone attack they they, they said that at least 10 maybe 20 drones hitting 19 targets and you know the footage is you know, on fire, smoke everywhere. It's crazy. There were, there were really no injuries, though. Thank goodness. But still, this is a significant development. It's going to have a huge effect on oil production, the price of oil. Donald Trump was talking out already about tapping into the strategic oil reserves. So there's already a sense of anxiety over this one attack, how, how it's going to affect our energy supply, which again, this should just be another case of why we have to step away from fossil fuels. Alternatively, the other options don't necessarily bode too much. You know, solar energy is nice and all, but then you'll get cloudy days. Wind energy can't really sustain everybody, but you know, we can diversify our energy sectors. But what I, what I mean to say is about this oil facility attack is it's starting to heat up. 
you know, I had mentioned earlier about oil tanker bombings in the Strait of Hormuz and uh, about how Trump had almost launched a strike against uh, Iranian sites, you know, minutes away from launching it. So now he is saying that we are locked and loaded and we are waiting for Saudi Arabia to tell us more on, uh, more on intel. Like, Mike Pompeo is already blaming Iran. Like, they see the attack and they just get excited. Like, oh, we have a reason now. And it's just so, it's like, really, like, we're going to go to war for Saudi Arabia to defend them. Well, not really them, it's their oil. That's what we're doing it for. But, you know, we, we, we this is a country that may or may not have attacked us. And now we're going to go and defend their honor. Like literally a week after 9-11, get, get out of here. It, it seems fishy. I mean, this whole situation and between Saudi Arabia, Iran, it's all fishy because we'll never really know the truth. We'll never know the truth. And if we go to war, we're going to be going in blind. And we're just going to be, it's not going to be about country or love or honor. It's just going to be about following orders. And those type of wars are never pretty. <laughs> no, they're never pretty. But yes, the drone strike was significant you know it's affected half of saudi arabia's oil production you know they're already ex expecting prices to rise so that's going to affect you know the gas tanks and the wallets there so you know just one attack from there has huge implications for the world i mean we're far more connected than people realize so yes, the administration now is just using this attack as another reason to blame Iran, as another reason to rally around each other. I mean, it's strange because I don't know if Trump wants a war, but if he does, he wants it with Iran because he's not going to choose North Korea. They're a nuclear power, not Russia. That would be the end of the world. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I can't really think of any other countries that he doesn't like except for Iran. And it's so strange, too, because he's all buddy-buddies with all these different dictators, but he chooses Iran specifically for whatever reason. Like, they don't want to mess with us, but we're still ratcheting them and attacking them. It will be inter interesting to see how uh, this is... You know, our, our policy towards Iran evolves because uh, John Bolton had just been fired or he resigned from his position as a national security advisor. So when he came into you know his position, plenty of people were worried that he may persuade Trump into fighting this war or into getting us into a military conflict. But now he's leaving. So whatever happened between them, that happened so he's leaving but my main concern is you know who's going to replace him who's going to take that seat because you know you think this monster is bad wait till you get another one yeah yeah the whole iran situation it could definitely blow up and if we do go to war with iran that's world war three because china or russia they're not going to tolerate that yeah, it's 
I mean, I wouldn't say that they would go to war, but a war in Iran would set it in motion. That's what I should say. It won't be like, oh, immediately. No, but it would certainly set it in motion. Actually, for the most part, I think World War III, we fought over resources like water and food, not oil, if, you want, if I'm going to be honest with you. But we're not there yet, so let's not think about that. So yes, so the administration is blaming Iran. Uh, however, it's also been reported that Houthi rebels in Yemen are claiming responsibility, and the Houthi rebels are, uh, you know, being aided by the Iranians. So in a way, the Iranians did attack Saudi Arabia. But it's one thing to just want to just go to war over an attack and not just take a moment to think, okay. Let's collect ourselves, let's gather the thoughts before we act. Yes, well, the Houthi rebels, they're claiming responsibility for this attack. They're ratcheting up their presence, and they're certainly letting Saudi Arabia know that they're still there, they're still alive, and they're coming for them. Yeah, the, the Houthi rebels have been launching missiles and strikes into Saudi Arabia, so this drone attack is a significant development. I mean, I might be. I, I would like to think that the Houthi rebels did it, because to me, Iran directly attacking Saudi Arabia is reckless and just makes no sense. But I'm no military expert. So with the Houthi rebels and the whole situation in Yemen too, uh, just real quick. From what I understand about the war, the civil war in Yemen, there's a Saudi-backed government. The people have risen up and they want their independence. I believe it was in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. So they've been fighting for some time. You know, there's the war in Syria, then there's Yemen. And Yemen, in, in a way, has also been, um, the war in Yemen has also been a product of climate change, as it was in Syria. You know, record-breaking drought, so depleting resources so people are just fighting to survive basically and the famine there is being described as the worst humanitarian crisis in history like the images you see is horrific and nightmarish and it's happening today it's happening right now in Yemen so those people need help for sure they got to get out of there like there's I saw images of people just eating there's no food, so they're just eating pulped up leaves. You just put it in the stew, mix it all together, and they just eat the pulp that's left. It's terrifying, man. That's, that's the apocalypse for them. It's there. But the war, the civil war, it's, uh, yeah. It's starting to affect the global economy. It's starting to affect global stability now given its proximity to the largest fossil fuel producer in the world. And it'll be interesting to see how the United States handles the situation with Iran and with Yemen. I mean, who knows that Trump could make a tweet now saying how Houthi rebels, you know, they're a terrorist group. I mean, they probably designated them as terrorists already, but they have no intention to hurt us. They're only after Saudi Arabia. Well, they'd probably hate us too because we sell 
you know, a shitload of weapons. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the number one weapons buyers of from the United States. So whenever you know they get cluster bombed, they're gonna they're gonna find the shrapnel. They're gonna see made by the United States government. So they know that we're part of the problem. So it's only a matter of time before they direct our their anger towards us. So I've spoken at length about the war on terror, uh, 9-11, the implications of that, huge implications, and just the Middle East in general, how this is turning out to be the, the center of global crises. I mean, this place hasn't, this place has been in constant chaos since the, the late seventies and it's just been, yeah, I mean, at the, at this point, you know, it's surprising to me how the cradle of civilization is turning out to be the, the epicenter of the end, the epicenter of the apocalypse. Cause eventually it's, it's going to get hot to a point that it, with climate change, it's going to get to a point that it will become inhospitable. And already, you know, the, the images, you know, it's a wasteland in some places. Like there's no life in some places. It's incredible. You know, the war just completely destroyed any infrastructure people could have to survive. And already the climate change on top of that is just destroying the natural cycles that have kept that region alive. So you're, you're really witnessing this place, the Middle East, wither away. So you know, when I'm watching uh, footage of ISIS and Mosul, like it, it's to me, it's like fallout. Like it's just like any other level in fallout. That's what it is to me. But that's that. Yeah, I just want to talk about 9-11 a little bit because that that just happened and that was pretty that's pretty important, you know, to reflect on. You know, it's interesting to me how other others reflect on the day. Not that I judge them, but you know, I just I try to see where they are. When it comes to this attack, because everybody has their own theories, or maybe they don't have their own theories. They just read what they've been told and then they just stick with it. But the fact that they'll defend what they've read, it really does show that lots of people. It, it's still it's still very fresh for obvious reasons. You know, it it occurred in our lifetime. Yeah, I will say like I've made statements or jokes before saying how you know we had it coming or, or that you know it's not as serious as it is and in a way not to say that we deserved it but it, it should have i mean they knew that there was somebody was orchestrating an attack they knew that people were planning now not to defend the actions but we have to understand the motivations behind it and so what it can be summed up with is what Osama bin Laden had said about uh, American interventions all around the world uh, he had worked with the Mujahideen and so he was being supplied by the United States to have to fight off the Soviet invasion so those images is you know just this goat herder a farmer and he's holding a SAM missile, it, yeah, from the late 80s, is, you know, it's iconic, you know, it's, yeah.
And it's funny how I mentioned earlier how if Obama had invited Taliban leaders into the country, how conservatives would have blown a gasket. I mean, there would be a lynch mob right outside the White House if they, if he had done that. However, you know, Ronald Reagan had those same people in the White House, like in the Oval Office. Like there's a famous image of him speaking with these Mujahideen leaders. And so I guess at the time they didn't really hate America yet, but yeah, those were the guys who would eventually attack us. So it's not really more of a, we had it coming. It's just like, oh, well, it's no surprise. I mean, it's not, it's not a good surprise, but it's no surprise. Just recapping on other world issues apart from 9-11. I also wanted to talk about Hurricane Dorian recovery efforts in the Bahamas. You know, people are getting by still, you know, making evacuations and ferrying over supplies. The um, U.S. Coast Guard and U.S. military, it's different agencies have been responding to it, which is really interesting, you know, seeing how quickly we've responded to help them. But, you know, it's, it's human nature to help others. I mean, you know, these are people that just got struck by the largest storm in our lifetimes and we have the ability to do something about it. Yeah. So it was nice. It's nice to see those images of people being helped out. However, I've seen other images of people being frustrated. Yeah, they're saying that the government or they feel as though the government has abandoned them. It really may just be more logistics issue because the Bahamas is a small island. There's only so much that they can respond to. They're just overwhelmed. Yeah, it's projected it's going to take billions to rebuild the Abaco, Marsh Harbor Islands, which I I have to say is a total loss. For the most part, the people, they're just going to have to rebuild on their own resources. And so those areas are, they're, they're not, it's not going to recover. Yeah, because eventually another storm is going to come through and it may be complete devastation again. I mean, just recently there was a hurricane or tropical storm, which upgraded into a hurricane, Umberto, and literally just right off the coast of uh, the Bahamas. Just, you know, so they probably got some rain, but thankfully they were spared the worst of it. So yeah, it was just a tropical storm, but yeah. It just goes to show how quickly a storm can occur. And thankfully, this situation, it was just a storm. So, you know, if anything, it would just been a lot of rain. But it still would have hampered you know, recovery efforts and the ability for people to respond to certain areas. Again, speaking more on uh, global issues. In Australia, there's been significant developments. So there have been reports of fires, uncontrollable fires, and the states of Queensland and New South Wales, just record-breaking fires. And what they're saying is that this is really the beginning of their collapse. Uh, the heat is just unbearable right now for them. And what's horrifying really is that they're not even in their summer yet. Like their, their summers or the peak summer is going to be December. 
So already they're experiencing record drought. They're already experiencing record heat and record fires and their summer is just starting. Like it's, Australia is going to burn. It's, it's quite sad really. Because I've always wanted to go to Australia. This Australia has always been marketed as this ecological paradise. And now it's experiencing the worst of this ecological collapse, the worst of climate change. Another story I've read is that one of the rivers has been experiencing a die-off of fish. Just all the fish are being killed and yeah, either from the heat or from the runoff of coal plants, Australia is one of, apart from the, you know, either the U.S. or China, Australia is one of the largest coal producers. And so the, the runoff or just the heat pollution has been killing these fish in the river. And they, they're saying that this river is going to die within the next couple of years if nothing is done. Which, yeah, that, yeah, it, that's uh, that's unfortunate. But the fish, though, they either have to be relocated. This is at the Darling River. They either have to be relocated or the river has to be cleaned out in some way. I mean, Australia, just in general, uh, coal runoff has been... They've approved a new site just within the proximity of the Great Barrier Reef. And the Great Barrier Reef is bleaching from the warming oceans, acidification of the oceans. And then now we have this runoff coal waste, which is just going to decimate all the ocean life. So it's really sad seeing how Australia, that, that prided itself with all this exotic wildlife and nature, is just throwing it all away. Throwing it all the way for profit and greed. So, I mean, the same guys, it's the same mentality that we have here. You know, it's all about profits and never about sustainability or life itself. Yeah, fuck that. So, that has been happening there in Australia. I mean, I, I'd always been like a big Steve Irwin fan as a kid. Like, it's always been like on my bucket list to visit there. See the Great Barrier Reef that, yeah. I mean, if I ever do get a chance to go to Australia, I would still go, but only so I could witness the devastation and just, I guess, just get angry, <laughs> just to, you know, really try to tell myself, okay, the people who did this, they have addresses and they deserve justice. Yeah, so in a, in a sense, motivation to continue on. Yes, in Australia, that's happened there. We'll try to touch up them. As, the, as their summer begins to heat up, no pun intended, they're, they're going to experience the worst of it. And it's this summer could be the... I mean, every summer after this, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse and worse with each passing year. I mean, this summer was already the hottest summer on record. And the next one is going to be hot. And the one after that, so it's a it's a trend. So we're setting trends here. Uh, another story I've been reading. I read this is a short article from Der Spiegel. Uh, considering plastics, uh, 
it's been found that, uh, at least in a German study, where they examined the urine samples of children from 3 to 17 years old, and they found traces of plastics. So take what you want with that. I mean, it could be something in the water, it could be in the food. I mean, microplastics at this point are everywhere. I have no doubt in my mind that there are plastics within me, and there are probably plastics within you. They're everywhere. They're in our food chain now. Other reports I've read about microplastics is that it's also carrying into the rain cycle. So now they're starting to find traces of plastics in rain, which means that the plastics that are in the ocean that evaporate get carried out into the clouds and they settle wherever they settle. And those plastics get soaked into the soil and affect the wildlife there. So it's everywhere. And they have read that, or I have read that, another report examining worms, earthworms. Well, what they did was they put, they had a container of soil with this microplastics or high density polyethylene and then another tank with nothing or just soil and just pure soil and so what they found is that in the tub with the polyethylene the worms over a 30-day period experience a three percent drop in body weight whereas the worms in the regular soil experienced a five percent gain in their body weight so the implications of that being that worms are going to, it's affecting their nutrition. And if the worm populations start to dwindle, it will have a worse effect. I mean, we already are experiencing insect population decline, bee population decline. So if the worms go too, you know, that's a double whammy. So the bees won't be able to pollinate the flowers. And the worms won't be able to sift through the dirt and add, add nutrition and nitrogen into it. So it's a double whammy. So on two fronts, we're experiencing decline in insect populations. And that itself has an effect on the cycle, the ecological cycle. Because, you know, again, everything's connected. So when one pillar goes, the others start to crumble. Yeah, considering plastic pollutions, I mean, from, by the year 2050, it's said that there will be more plastics in the ocean than fish. So that's a thought to have. Also, by 2050, uh, they, reading from a Vice article, I read that climate change will create 1.5 billion refugees by 2050. So. You know, crediting it, crediting with droughts, a mixture of droughts and sea level rise, flooding, political unrest. And the thing about that is, you know, you have 1.5 billion refugees and they don't really have anywhere to go. Like, where are they going to go? Because the whole world is going to be chaos. It's like 2050. Okay, yeah. If you're listening to this, save the date 2050. So if things are all right now. I guess I'll eat a shoe or whatever. 
but yes that's the year everybody's you know that's the they're they're setting that as the the year that could change make or break humanity our civilization it's really um distressing because you know by 24 by 2050 i will be I do math in my head. Fifty-four. Yep, I'll be fifty-four. So, you know, I will have lived the the full life by that point. So my life is just starting now, and the next thirty years look like they're going to be hell, like hell, little hell on earth. So by the time I'm fifty-four, either we're living in some utopian metropolis or it's done. Everything's gone. So it really could go any, either way. I'm not here to predict the future. But yes. I feel that with that being said, wrapping up, covered most of the topics that I wanted to speak on. But this episode, again, there have been significant developments with the Middle East and the terrorism. Because it's the general theme of this episode. But with this attack on the oil facility, it's going to be, an, uh, it's going to develop into a crisis, I think. Because we're already seeing talk of possible military conflict. And here's the thing that I hate about our media. Because they always say, oh, a possible military conflict with Iran. Possible. Hey, that's, the, that's the term that they go to. You know how George Carlin, he talks about how they the simplification of our language or you know they're not going to say it's a war but it's a military action so that's why i can't i can't respect the meet the media anymore because it's all codes and it's all like yeah they can't just say war because oh no war has to be officially declared by congress no it's war okay it doesn't matter you know what you do it's war when you're killing people that's war you know what is it good for nothing yeah i mean i don't want to go to war with iran nobody does it's just it's not worth it i don't want to go to war in general you know if you're going to give me a war give me something worth dying for this is not it this ain't it fam i'm not dying for oil well, that's assuming I get drafted. You know, I'm not usually, I'm not the most physically in shape guy in the world, but they'll get what they can. They'll get what they can. So I feel that's um, all the topics that I wanted to touch up on today. Again, for those who are tuning in and listening, I greatly appreciate y'all. Uh, I've just set up a email address, as I said that I would do before. So it is collapsetalkpod at outlook.com. And that's also the same handle for my Twitter, at collapsetalkpod. Yeah, just go ahead, give me a follow. Or, you know, from from the Outlook address, send me any emails you have, any articles you may want to talk about, questions. Hopefully I can do a QA and a if this picks up. Or, you know, just tell me I'm full of shit. You know, I need feedback, honestly. But yes, the email address, 
Collapse Talk Pod at Outlook.com, Twitter, Collapse Talk at Collapse Talk Pod. Uh, this is your host, Gabriel. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you.